Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Eric Gonzalez and Michael Stir. Welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. All right. We are getting into the thick of it here in the new year. Happy New Year to all of our followers and all of our fans out there bringing some great content into 2022. So get right into it. Trading season has begun. Rajon Rondo, after coming back to the Lakers, is now off to LeBron's old team, the Cavs, to kick off this trading season as we sit about a month away from the deadline. What do you think Rajon Rondo's impact will be for the Cavs? I think that for the Cavs, it's going to be necessary for him to have a big impact. This is basically coming on the heels of the Ricky Rubio injury, um, torn ACL, so he's out for the year. So they basically are replacing a very gifted passer with another very gifted passer, floor general, traditional um, pass first type point guard mentality. But um, I think that for Rondo, he's going to have a big role to fill because they're basically going to ask him to do the exact things that Ricky Rubio was doing for them. And he was playing a pretty big role for them on the way to the fifth seed in the Eastern Conference. So Rondo is going to be on a team where he's going to be expected to make a contribution. Hopefully that reinvigorates him. Um, we know that Rondo is the kind of player that when he's locked in mentally, he can definitely make a positive impact on your team. It's just a question of can he be locked in mentally? He's always been the kind of player that has been um, a little bit unpredictable in his moods and attitudes, but he's going to have an opportunity here with rookie Rubio out. They have a definite need for a guy that can get everyone in their sets, bring some experience to a very young team and a team that's in contention right now. So um, he actually upgraded to a more competitive team. So if I'm him, I'd be happy. Yeah, it's crazy to think that the Cavs are more competitive than the Lakers in any given season. But like you said, it's on the heels of the Ricky Rubio injury. He'll be out for the year, I believe, with an ACL tear. And now Rondo comes in and fills that spot. And Rubio is averaging 28 minutes a game. So I don't think Rondo will quite get up there. But I think, like you said, it'll be a reinvigoration for Rondo. It is probably unfortunate for him in terms of just like moving around because he was in LA for a couple of years, got settled there, decided to go to Atlanta, which then traded him to the Clippers halfway through the season. Then he re-upped over in LA now to then go over to Cleveland. So a little bit of an established, I, I think, life in LA to then now shift over to Cleveland. But it's a better situation, as you discussed. If you look at the Cavs overall, they're a better shooting team than the Lakers, which should allow uh, Rondo to be able to be the floor general. And his overall shooting numbers were down this year as compared to his uh, years in recent past. He last year was at 40% from three. The year before that, 33%, 36%, 33%. So he's been doing well since the start of his career where he was shooting an abysmal 21%. And this year he was at 27%. And I think that's due to the Lakers struggles. So I think being on a team where there's so many big men, they're going to be dominating all of their opponents in the paint, being able to establish his floor general self, and then also being on a team that shoots at a better clip than the current team he was on should unlock old Rondo. Yeah. I got to wonder if LeBron himself isn't kind of jealous that he's not the one going back to his hometown of Cleveland right now. You got to be wondering if he's looking at that Cleveland roster right now, thinking to himself, Hmm, 
that definitely is a better supporting cast than what I've got here in LA. Oh, we'll see if he makes his third return to Cleveland after the end of this contract. But moving on, going back to back, both nights, years, days, DeMar DeRozan had back-to-back game winners in two days, two years, and two nights. We've talked a lot about the Bulls and a little bit about DeMar, but what do you think of his overall resurgence this year? And how, how do these back-to-back shots exemplify what he's been doing? Honestly, this has been so unprecedented. I wish that I could claim that I saw this coming, but I really did not. I did not think that it was going to be as bad of a fit as a lot of other people in the media did when they were calling it the worst free agent signing of the offseason. You know, a lot of people were saying that this was literally an awful move and they don't know why the Bulls would do such a thing. But um, clearly the Bulls proved everybody wrong. Two back-to-back game winners in consecutive nights, and he's doing it on elite production. We're talking about a guy who is leading the league right now in fourth quarter scoring. So it's not like he's only, you know, stat padding, getting these points during moments of the game that the game is already decided. No, he's literally making he's making the most of an impact when the game is on the line, as you're seeing in these last two game winners. And I almost feel bad for Zach Levine because he's clearly come in here and taken his team from him. I mean, I, I would have thought that Zach Levine was the best player on the Bulls at the beginning of the season. And I kind of want to still say that he is the best player now. But DeMar DeRozan has really made the case for MVP, honestly, this year, not just for the Bulls, but for the MVP award itself. He's definitely someone that has to be in the conversation. The Bulls took over the number one spot in the East. And it's largely because of the performances that DeMar DeRozan has been putting up. So um, they've had a lot of guys out too, just like other teams. But they've been a team that's been able to weather the storm. They have a lot of depth. And like we've been saying all year, they're going to be a problem for the whole season. And it's largely because of DeMar DeRozan. What's crazy is if you look at his three-point attempts, he's shooting the most threes since he was in Toronto. He shot at a very low clip in Popovich's system, which is expected because Pop loves the old school mid-range, but he's shooting at 36%, which is the best that he shot ever in his career from three. And you couple that with probably a more efficient mid-range game, which is interesting to think about because I think everybody has always thought of DeMar as a mid-range scorer. And then he went to Pop's system, obviously brought out his mid-range scoring, but I think Overall, his numbers dipped a little bit from his peak in Toronto. So you now have this guy who probably learned a lot within pop system, even though his numbers were down. And then you put him in a situation to succeed with better players, a different coach with a new style of play and just a fast and exciting team over in Chicago. And then you look, well, we couple DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry together because they were on Toronto together for so long. But DeMar DeRozan's only 32. He's still at the end of when you think a player's peak is supposed to be. So he is still playing at a high level because his peak hasn't like he hasn't finished uh, his peak period in terms of his development. So I think that while it is a little bit surprising, given his down years, uh, if you want to call them that in San Antonio, it's not that surprising in terms of the younger guys that he's playing with, the familiarity with some of the guys on the team like Vucevic, and then just 
Billy Donovan's fast style of play over in Chicago and how that has fit in to the, and, and really played well to all these guys' strengths. Yeah, I think that for DeMar DeRozan, the main reason everyone kind of was singing about his decline is because, number one, his style of play over the last couple of years, a player who isn't really a prolific shooter from the outside and really lives um, in the mid-range and in the paint, that style of forward had been going out of style ever since the three-point shot became popularized. And that, in addition to moving into Greg Popovich's system, which de-emphasizes any one player and really makes it hard for any one player to get star-type stats when he has such an egalitarian offense. Those two things combined made everyone kind of forget about who DeMar DeRozan was. And I think that um, San Antonio's offense isn't really one that caters to his greatest skill, which is his athleticism. I think that he's one of the more athletic uh, perimeter players in the league still, especially at his size and length. And Greg Popovich's system didn't really emphasize getting players in transition, which is one of the best ways for a guy like DeMar DeRozan to get easy baskets and take advantage of his physical tools. So being in a system that emphasizes more fast break scoring, having other people to take a little bit of, um, of defensive pressure off of him has allowed him to free up his game. And he's honestly been extremely efficient. 26.9 points per game on 49% shooting. Like you said, career high three-point percentage and his usual steadiness, the free throw line, 85%. And he's chipping in five rebounds and 4.5 assists. So he definitely is making the case. He is, but enough about him. We'll talk about two guys who are expected to return this week, Clay Thompson and Kyrie Irving. Clay, after rehabbing a couple of injuries, one with his ACL and one with his Achilles, will now be making his debut for the Warriors after couple of years of absence and Kyrie Irving after half of a season sitting out due to the COVID protocols in New York will now be making his debut with the team. Who do you think for each of these teams for the Warriors and Nets respectively will have a better impact? I got to say it's probably going to be Clay Thompson just because of the simple fact that he's actually going to be a consistent part of the game plan on a game to game basis. Whereas Kyrie Irving is only going to be able to play in the away games. So I think that that, that like dynamic of having a player only play half the games and basically having to kind of shift roles on a game-to-game basis is something that can cause dysfunction in the locker room. And also, you know that it's going to happen where every single game, they're going to be asking the players, oh, how do you feel about this? You know, how do you think Kyrie Irving only being able to play half the games is affecting the team? The media is going to pound it every single weekend, every single night. And it's just going to be annoying. It's going to be distractions, whereas Clay Thompson is going to seamlessly go in and it's going to be a role that's already predetermined. He knows the exact role they need him to be in. He knows exactly what he needs to do. He's excelled at doing it before. And even if you were to put them together um, on even ground and say that Kyrie was going to play every single game, I would still probably say that Clay Thompson would have a, a better net impact just because even though Kyrie Irving um, probably would put up better looking stats in terms of the number of points he's scoring, Clay Thompson is going to give you more on both ends. Kyrie Irving, not really known to be a great defensive player. I mean, you can't really blame him at his size, but Clay Thompson is someone that can give you plus defense and plus offense. His game is also not predicated on sinking difficult shots like Kyrie Irving's is. 
He is a player that you can consistently expect to count on his jump shot on a night-to-night basis. You can count on him to give effort on defense on a night-to-night basis. He's not going to cause any drama. And he's generally been very productive throughout his career, um, minus these two injuries, whereas Kyrie Irving may not be available even when all things should say that he's available. So I got to give Clay Thompson the edge. So I'm going to take this a little bit differently than you. I think that Kyrie is going to make a bigger impact in terms of just helping the Nets out because I don't think that Golden State needs as much help. I think that Brooklyn as a whole is not as complete of a team. They've lost three in a row. They're six and four in their last 10, whereas the Warriors are winners of their last two and eight and two in their last 10. So I think Clay Thompson could never play a game this season and the Warriors would still have a great chance to win it all. Whereas the Nets, I don't think they get past the Bulls, the Bucks, potentially the Heat or the 76ers in a seven game series. If any one of their guys goes down or Joe Harris comes back and is not at 100% for the rest of the season. So I do think that Kyrie Irving will provide added depth and allow for guys like Kevin Durant, James Harden, and other players on that team to get the necessary rest that they need so that when they go back and play home games, they're able to play rested, reinvigorated. And even if they're missing Kyrie, Kyrie will take off the load when they're in their away games. So I think from a game to game, day to day impact perspective, uh, Kyrie is going to have a bigger impact because the Warriors are so complete already that Clay is just an added bonus and Kyrie is a necessity. I can see that. I got to agree with you. I got to say, though, for Kyrie Irving, it's impressive to be able to put himself in a position where he can be paid full-time to be a part-time player. That I don't think right they there, will. No, I think You don't think they, they will? No, I think they said they won't pay him for the New York games, no matter what, until he gets vaccinated. All so right. I think, well, I guess I think he's gotten – I think he's gotten paid for the away games that he hasn't played in right now because the team chose not to keep him there, whereas he's choosing not to do the New York ones. So I think it's if the team chooses to sit you out, we'll pay you. If you choose to sit out, we're not going to pay you. So he's getting like part time pay. But I mean, part time pay is like $20 million. So (laughs) I guess it works out. It's even for both sides. Yeah. But. Let's talk about another exciting point guard who had a season high. Trey Young sets his career and season high point mark with 56 points against the Trailblazers, who won because of Anthony Simmons' career high 43 points. So both teams right now are sitting at 12th in their conferences and are in similar places as far as their seasons have gone. But which performance and Pressed you more, and which team do you think is more likely to make that second half push? Well, I mean, I got to say, as impressive as both performances were, Trey Young probably had the best individual performance just because he also chipped in 14 assists on only four turnovers and had a differential of plus 10 on the game. He also went 15 of 15 from the free throw line. And he may have not hit as many threes as Ann Fernie Simons did, but he did go 7 of 12 and was 17 of 26 overall from the field. Very efficient 56 points, which is also the highest point total on the year, passing Stephen Curry's previous high. So 
Um, I think it's really impressive what Trey Young did. He definitely put the team on his back. He shows that every now and then he has the ability to win you a game all by himself, which is one of the qualities that I think is essential. If you're going to call yourself a superstar, you have to have that ability to on any given night, at least give your team the potential to go off like this and single-handedly win a game. Unfortunately for Trey Young, they didn't get the win um, because Anthony Simons just was that good. He was nine of 16 from three, gave them 43 points. And they also had three other players in their lineup score 20 or more. And Damian Lillard did not play this game. And this just goes to highlight exactly what the issue with the Hawks is. They don't guard anybody. And we already knew that they were a bad defensive team. We thought that getting Clint Capella was going to help alleviate that. But with Trey Young as the linchpin of their perimeter, um, it's kind of, it kind of puts them in a bind because when they have a backcourt that is effective offensively, they'll usually pair Trey Young with a guy like a Kevin Herter or perhaps a, a Gallinari or, you know, players that are good from the outside, but they don't have any ability to defend either. So you're kind of digging yourself into a really deep hole with other players that are on the perimeter because they're going to carve you up from out there. So you turn every game into a shootout. And at that point, you kind of rely on being able to outshoot the other team. And for the Hawks this season, more often than not, it's turned into losses more so than wins. But um, I got to say, I think that probably the Portland Trailblazers right now, the way that they stand, they've slipped a little further. They're 14 and 22. The Hawks, 16 and 20. The Hawks have made a second half comeback before, so it wouldn't be crazy to see them do it again. But the Portland Trailblazers have the benefit of softer standings in the Western Conference towards the bottom. The East this year is just maybe a little bit too competitive for the Hawks to get back into it. Um, they have a couple of other teams in front of them that we expected to be competitive. The Knicks are right in front of them at 18 and 20. The Celtics are still in front of them. The Raptors, which have been surprising this season at 17 and 17, are in front of them. They still have to compete with the Hornets to get a spot there. And they have to hope that the Washington Wizards keep dropping because other than that, all the other teams seem like they'll probably have a shot at holding their position or be somewhere around there. Whereas if you look at the Western Conference, um, you're looking at the number eight team is only 19 and 19. Number 19, the Minnesota Timberwolves are 17 and 20. So you can conceivably get into a plane in the West with a losing record. But I think that in the East, every team that makes the playoffs is going to have to have a winning record. Well, I would say the one thing that's working against the Portland Trailblazers is the health of their two stars. You have Damian Lillard, who's out indefinitely with an abdominal issue. You have CJ McCollum, who's also out right now because of a chest issue, and he's out indefinitely. So I think the Anthony Simons case for what he just did shows, hey, maybe we could trade CJ for a Ben Simmons or for a Jeremy Grant or a front court player that complements Dame in a different way because we have a young shooting guard who could be a very nice piece for us where we don't necessarily need CJ anymore and we can get more front court depth. And they also remember have Norman Powell who can play that two, three position. So I think that while Portland is got an easier route to the playoffs, 
I still would like the Hawks over Portland just because I think the Hawks are a more complete team overall. They have seven players who've played more than 10 games who have averaged over 10 points a game. Obviously, you mentioned the defense is the issue for them, so they do need to get better defensively. But like you said, they pretty much returned their same roster as they did last year. They went through the troubles with Lloyd Pierce, fired him, now have Nate McMillan after he had his interim title back there this year. So they've already done this before. They're only sitting four games below 500. You know a lot of teams after the All-Star break come back reinvigorated and ready to go. So maybe that happens again for them, but they will need to pick it up on the defensive end. But I think given the health issues as well as the lack of completeness comparatively to the Hawks, the Trailblazers have a more difficult time getting the playoffs. Yeah, I can see that. I'm really still hoping that uh, the Trailblazers do right by Damian Lillard and just trade CJ McCollum. I'm not saying that CJ is a bad player, but like you said, and Fernie Simons has kind of made him a little expendable. You want CJ McCollum mainly for floor spacing and mainly for gravity to be able to open up the paint, allow Damian Lillard to drive and be able to create off the dribble for himself. And Fernie Simons obviously is not as good as CJ McCollum is right now, but he gives you the ability to do that and is shooting 40% from three on the year. So clearly he's a consistent shooter on high volume from three. He'll give you that spacing. And he's clearly developed his game, been able to add other pieces, other moves besides just uh, spot up three pointers. So I think that you could definitely mitigate the loss of CJ McCollum and diversify your skill set a little bit. Um, the Celtics have a similar situation on their hands with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. We'll see if anything happens to correct the issue. I think that Damian Lillard probably is going to come back at some point this year reinvigorated. I don't think he's going to be unhealthy all year long. But I guess it remains to be seen which of these teams can actually pull it up. Both of them having very disappointing seasons after having expectations of making playoff runs. Yeah, I think if the Trailblazers could trade at, like uh, Nurkic as well as CJ and some other pieces on their team and get back like Miles Turner, DeMontis Sabonis, Jeremy Grant, like getting length, getting guys who can defend getting guys who can score and score from like a all three phases of the game and not be in the backcourt with Dame. I think that it would benefit their team greatly and benefit Dame greatly as well. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta hope for him that they do right by him. I mean, he is at this point now in his thirties, you would like to see what he could do in the playoffs with the team that actually has the weapons to compete with the elite competition um, you know, he's hit a lot of clutch shots, but um, you got to respect his loyalty. Um, just, I guess, standing tight and hoping that they do right by him someday. Remains to be seen. But on to our last segment, plead their case. I will ask you a series of questions and you will plead the individual situation's case. Let's do this. All right. Quinn Snyder, coach of the Utah Jazz, stated that Draymond should be considered for MVP though he doesn't make MVP numbers. Plead Draymond's case for MVP, given he doesn't make or put up MVP numbers. MVP numbers are always, you know, thought of as something that's going to be high in the points column and then at least somewhat productive distributions on your assists and rebounds, some kind of impact on defense. I mean, yeah, Draymond isn't putting up 
you know, even more than 10 points per game. He's only putting up 7.9 rebounds per game, but he's actually low key putting up close to a triple double every game too. He is also getting 7.9 rebounds per game and 7.7 assists per game. He's been very efficient. He only turns it over 3.2 times per game with how much he handles the ball. And he's also one of the only players in the league that's averaging over a block and over a steal per game as well. So he is providing um, MVP level defense that everybody can see. But I think that one of the main things you got to look at is when you see him on the floor, you just see how he organizes everyone and gets everyone into their sets. His plus minus on the team is at 6.2 on the year. The guy has actually been the vocal leader, heart and soul of the team. What he does is probably rarer in a way than what Stephen Curry does for them because they have other players that can fill it up from the outside. We saw this last game that they played against the Miami Heat. Stephen Curry, I think he only went one for 10 from three. He had a terrible shooting night and they still won because Jordan Poole was able to step up that game and have a Stephen Curry-esque game. So Andrew Wiggins, another one who's, who stepped up. But when Draymond Green has a bad game, they lose. I think that he's essential to their success because he's the guy that organizes everyone, makes everyone feel confident in their role, gets everyone to play hard. He's the one that calls you out when you make a mistake. Stephen Curry, a little bit more of a soft-spoken guy who leads by example. I think every team needs a guy like Draymond, um, love him or hate him, that's going to be a vocal leader, that's going to get everybody else fired up to get everyone else to play to the best of their ability. So even though his numbers aren't the best, he helps everyone else produce their best numbers. So I think that his impact is definitely felt when he's not playing. Yeah, he's like we were talking about earlier with Rondo. He is the floor general. Steph is definitely the star player and the face of the Warriors, but Draymond's the heart and soul. And so I think what Quinn Snyder is saying is the numbers and the stats are what people pay attention to in terms of like trying to benchmark people against one another. But the real like actuality of it is there are intangibles that you can't measure and there are things that you cannot quantify. And Draymond for all of those things is a very complete player, not only within the passing, shooting, rebounding defense, but like you said, the motivation and the drive that fuels and powers everybody on that team. Yeah, I mean, I think he actually has a higher plus minus than Stephen Curry does this season. So even though he doesn't always have, um, you know, amazing numbers in the stats column, I don't know how many triple doubles he would have had this year. If only he would have broken 10 points. You clearly feel his impact, especially when you watch the game. You can see how when he's on the floor, how he affects everyone else's play. Yeah. Well, talk about a another guy that people are saying is the best in the NBA. So Desmond Bain from the Grizzlies stated that the argument currently should not be about Ja being one of the best point guards in the NBA, but about being the best point guard in the NBA. Please Ja Morant's case on why he is the best point guard currently in the NBA. Ooh, I mean, John Morant has definitely taken a major leap this year. If you're just looking at his raw numbers, it's hard to deny that he's not an MVP caliber guy. I mean, he's averaging 25 points per game. He's giving you 6.7 assists and 5.7 rebounds 
So he's giving you really good overall production. He's also giving you 1.4 steals per game. He only turns it over 3.1 times per game for a guy that has such high usage. He's not an elite free throw shooter, but he's better than he was last year, bringing himself up to a respectable 77%. He gets to the line 6.2 times per game, putting pressure on other teams' defenses. And he's a much improved three-point shooter this year, shooting 40% from three on 4.3 attempts per game. Overall, 48% from the field. It's really hard to say that he's not the best point guard in the NBA. I mean, you may be able to say that a guy like Stephen Curry or a guy like Damian Lillard can be better based on, you know, what they've done over the course of their career. But if we're just talking about raw numbers this season, he's right up there with everybody else. I think the main guy that anybody would say is, well, how can you say that? They're Stephen Curry. Yes, Stephen Curry is averaging more points per game, but John Morant is giving you better defense. He is turning it over less. He actually is shooting a higher percentage from three, even though he's not taking as many attempts. He's also giving you more assists, and he's also giving you more rebounds. So I think that even though Stephen Curry is averaging two more points per game than him, you can make the case that on overall production, especially when you compare the field goal percentage, because Stephen Curry, that's where he really has a disadvantage on him. Stephen Curry at 42% field goal on the season to only get you two more points per game compared with John Moran, who's shooting 49%. You can't really argue that Steph Curry is 100% the best point guard in the NBA. You, you got to include John Moran in the conversation. His numbers definitely put him there. And also his team has been very successful. I know they had a lot of success without him, but we've seen his impact the last couple of games taking down some of the league's best. Um, we saw what he did against the Nets, the game winner he hit earlier since his return. He definitely is a guy that can be a game-changing player. And he's someone that at this point is probably making the Pelicans wonder if they should have chosen him instead with the number one pick. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yeah, they should have. But talking about Ja compared to the best point guards in the NBA, I think right now there's a top three, and it's somebody you already mentioned, Stephen Curry, Ja Morant, and Trey Young. And when you look at these three, Trey Young has the best PER, Stephen Curry has the best win shares, and Ja Morant is leading them in a couple of uh other categories so he's got more better assist numbers than Steph and better rebound numbers than Trey but I I think as you look at these three guys their style of play is different and if you look at the impact that they're having on their team yes Trey is the best player on their team but the Hawks are sitting in the 12th position the Golden State Warriors are obviously amazing but they have other pieces and Steph could sit out on some night they obviously wouldn't be as good as they are this year, but I still think that they would be in contention within the Western Conference. The Memphis Grizzlies, if you took Ja out of this, this situation, they would be the, the, the Thunder. They would be the Pelicans. They they would not be where they are at currently without John ja Morant. And last week we talked about, are they better without John ja Morant? No, no, that was a ridiculous conversation that people were having online. John ja Morant is the heart and soul of the Memphis Grizzlies. He is the face of their friend franchise. And I think next year he's going to have an even bigger leap overall. So 
I think Ja is definitely in the top five discussion in the NBA, and I think he's going to continue to grow as the years go on. Yeah, and you got to also think about the fact that we're talking about a player that as of right now is still very young. I mean, John Morant, only in his third year, he's still a player that can rise a lot. For him to be putting up this production so early in his career is remarkable. And I think the biggest differentiator with him and one of the reasons why he can be possibly um, the best scorer of the three, maybe not the best shooter ever, is his raw athleticism. He doesn't have the physical deficiencies that Stephen Curry and that Trey Young have. John Morant is a player that is strong, has size, has explosive athleticism. He brings that Russell Westbrook athleticism with a better jump shot and better decision-making. I think that he really does have the ability to become the best point guard of all of these players because he's the only one of these guys that can consistently um, score other ways when his jump shot isn't falling. He's a guy that's very efficient scoring around the basket, getting to the paint, um, finishing with authority. These are things that Stephen Curry and Trey Young can't do. And to be honest with you, Trey Young and Stephen Curry are only good players scoring inside when they can leverage their outside shot and use smart angles and um, clever dribble moves to be able to navigate the paint. John Morant, on the other hand, he can get in the paint on any given night, whether his shot is falling or not. And that's what we're seeing that even though John Morant very young player, only in his third year. He's still the leader of those three players in field goal percentage. It's because of his ability to consistently get easier baskets. I think that Trey Young and Steph Curry have to make tougher shots on a game-to-game basis to have success, whereas John Moran, on the other hand, you can count on him to consistently get to the paint and um, impact the game on offense on easier looks on a, on a game-to-game basis. Yeah, well, all three guys, exciting to watch. Obviously, Trey and Ja being the new life or the changing of the card in the NBA, whereas Steph is on the tail end of his prime, but still all three exciting to watch. Under our last part of the segment, Jimmy Butler is out again with a twisted ankle this time, and at this point has missed a similar amount of time or similar amount of games to AD, who everyone considers to be made of glass over the last three seasons. So plead Jimmy's case for why his injury-prone label should not be a concern. Yeah, I mean, there was um, a point in time earlier this year where a stat came out, Stan Van Gundy put out, that Anthony Davis had missed 49 games for the Lakers over the past three seasons, and Jimmy Butler had missed 48 games over the same time frame. And I think that even me, my mind was blown to hear it because – at that point in the season, Jimmy Butler hadn't gone down with the ankle twice like he has now. So um, at that point, it was just kind of like, wow, he really does miss a lot of time. And I think the reason why is that um, Jimmy Butler tends to miss a lot of time in bunches, in like small little bunches. He'll be out like five games here, five games there. So you don't see him miss like entire months in a row like you do with Anthony Davis, who misses all his games all at once. So I think that's the reason why a lot of people um, didn't really relate Jimmy Butler as being as injury prone as Anthony Davis. But I think that that right there is also one of the key reasons why the Heat don't have as much to worry about as maybe the Lakers fans do for Jimmy Butler. Because I think that for Anthony Davis, even though they've missed a similar amount of games, the nature of Anthony Davis's injuries tend to be more severe. 
they tend to be the kinds of injuries that take him out for lots of time before he can come. And then he has to have an acclimation period when he comes back. Jimmy Butler, at the very least, his injuries tend to be more like nicks and bangs, like, you know, a contusion on his glutes or a sprained ankle like he has now. These are injuries that, while annoying, and they keep him out um, in a sort of way where it seems like he's in for three games and he's out for three games, it does make it a little bit easier to return and get into the swing of things because you're not missing as much consecutive time. And they're not injuries that, you know, can't be overcome in a, in a playoff-type situation. I'm sure that if the Heat were in a playoff environment and they had to play another game, that Jimmy Butler probably could come back and play on his current injury. It's just that they're not going to do it right now because there's no point in risking re-aggravating it. So, yes, Jimmy Butler, he is injury-prone, but I don't think they have to worry about it as much as you'd have to worry with Anthony Davis. The nature of his injuries aren't quite as bad. Yeah, I think that Jimmy's, like you said, they're keeping him out because they want him to be healthy for the playoffs. I think it's more of because his injuries are not severe, they could play him if they wanted to, but they're not going to because they'd rather keep him fresh and healthy for later runs. Whereas Anthony Davis is, even if he wanted to play, he's not going to be able to. Yeah, that's been the story of his career. Um, you got to hope that Jimmy Butler can come back and play consistently because the further Miami Heat, I mean, this may be, if there was a, an award for most depleted team in the NBA, the Heat would definitely have to be a candidate to win that one. I don't remember the last time that they've had their whole team healthy, but with all the, the challenges that they've had with injuries, health and safety protocols, especially um, to front court players, they especially need Jimmy Butler's size and defense. They're defensively depleted right now with their best defensive player out. They already don't have much in the way of front court players relying on Omer Yurt seven, who honestly has been a bit of a revelation for them, but he's actually the only traditional big man that they have on their roster available right now because Deadman's out too. And um, PJ Tucker, I don't really think you can really classify a six foot six guy as a big man. Um, they just got him back from having lower leg nerve inflammation. So you got to figure they're going to bring him along slowly. He came back off the bench in the game that he just returned. So the Heat are obviously a much better team when Jimmy Butler plays. He changes their identity and seems to make everyone else more confident in a similar way that Draymond Green can affect the Warriors. But um, it just seems that his reckless style of play, always attacking the paint, trying to get to the free throw line, is one that also lends itself to injuries like the ones he's been having. Yeah, it's crazy. If you look at the heat injuries right now, uh, obviously Oladipo has been out given his injury from last season and surgery, but it's Oladipo, Bam Adebayo, Dwayne Dudman, Markeith Morris, Haslam, Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson, Marcus Garrett, KZ Akpala, and Jimmy Butler. You can And Max Struess. And Max Struess now. So you can, with these 11 guys, fill a starting roster with a full bench and another guy. And that's just what they've been dealing with. They're relying on guys like Kyle Guy, who's actually been solid. They're going to have to make a decision with him, um, especially given, I mean, they, mean they really Jack like Harlow? Gabe Vincent. <laughs> you got, that made me look twice, honestly. When he came onto the court, I was wondering what that was about. I was like, am I watching a celebrity all-star game? But um, 
It's going to be a hero put in a good word for his boy. He said, Hey, (laughs) write a song about me. Once our team is completely depleted, I'll, I'll bring you onto the roster. It looks like he really did teach him how to work on his jumper. The way he said in the song. He did. Well, with that, it's the end of our show. Like us on any of the social media outlets, follow us on any of your favorite podcast players. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stir. Court is adjourned.